It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fine, you so say you've gone viral. Well, Reasons to be Cheerful has inadvertently hit the headlines. Uh, apparently I was airbrushed out. Yeah, now you know how I feel 90% of the time when we get any press coverage and my name isn't mentioned. Yeah, it's true. On this occasion, your name wasn't mentioned. Do you remember last week I told you my reason to be cheerful was that I'd done an interview with Bjorn Ulvaeus from ABBA? Yes, yes. Well, somehow that has been picked up by the press and it was on the mirror online the metro the sun the express all these abba fan sites and that the reason people have picked it up is that i just just gave a summary of what we've talked about and you said are they reuniting and i said yeah they've done five new songs he's currently on his island in the stockholm archipelago we talked about his island um but it's this number five that people have, have got very excited about the five songs so the, the number five was magical because it, the one of the implications of a question you asked you asked him about w- the five songs they had coming out and he didn't he didn't demur from that did he he didn't demur he didn't deny there were five songs i said so you've got these new five songs coming out how was yeah. it being back in the studio and you know he talked about how magical it was and it was like they'd never been away and when will your interview be coming out for those people who want to listen i think it's going to be on i think if, if people are listening in the states and they uh, they have serious radio um it's going to be on the beatles channel sometime in august so uh, what else have you been up to on the theme of this week's episode my wife and I, because uh, we're going to be talking about you know how we how we use our cities, Ed will explain in a minute, but a lot of it will be about cycling. So Sarah and I went on a bike ride on Friday night, and we thought we'd uh, let, let's go and see what central London looks like. So we cycled into Soho, yeah, uh, into Soho Square, which is you know busy at the best of times. It it certainly looked busy having not been in the thick of things for months and months and months. Maybe less less busy than it would have been on an ordinary summer night. But the, there were huge queues of, of of guys waiting to use the outdoor pissoir right. that they have in Soho Square. Right. You're aware of this. Uh, there are a few places that have these outdoor urinals. I wasn't, but anyway. You've never partaken. I can't remember, but anyway, ca- carry on. So, so these aren't p- porta potties; they're the sort of French style pissoirs. Anyway, Sarah was really disgusted because she thinks um, that why why should men get to have that solution for them when there is no such solution for women? And what's the answer to that? Well, she thinks that there should be no outdoor. Uh, you know toilets like that until they've figured a way for women to be able to do it but surely we want a solution for women too well that exactly but she you know so i i i kind of my initial reaction was well if you can instantly take away half of the problem then why wouldn't you do that and then work on the other half well that sounds a bit like we'll just well the men will have their ability to spend a penny and 
well, we'll just have a sort of no solution for women. Doesn't it sound like that? And until the solution is found, you think they should be taking away the pissoirs? But sorry, what is until the solution is found? Why, why would you not be able to find a solution? Am I being dense here? What about portaloos for women? Well, these aren't portaloos. They take up less space and presumably they need to be maintained less than a portaloo would. I know, but that sounds like a detail. Shouldn't we have sort of equality in this mm. so that women have equal access to the toilet? I think just sort of logistically, I don't think these things are designed in, in that way. I think there are designed... These things aren't designed that way, but there must be other things that could be designed in that way. No? Well, maybe that should be your next project. We've already decided that the make-your-own-sandwiches are dud. Maybe some kind of outdoor pissoir that everybody can use. That that could be your next thing. I mean, there is something coming forward to the House of Commons called the Non-Domestic Rates Public Lavatories Bill, but I think that might only be about business rates relief. So it doesn't... It's a, you're, whereas you're looking for a different kind of relief. Who says parliamentary politics is boring? What, what, what's the argument against the equal solution? I just think it's that it doesn't currently exist. That sounds like a sort of computer says no. I uh, I bought my mother-in-law something called a shiwi. I think this conversation has gone far enough. Well, th- that story, um, even though I don't think we've resolved anything, and maybe it won't be resolved until uh, either Ed in- invents uh, a, a pissoir for all, or maybe with the second reading of this public lavatories business rates bill. I wouldn't rely on the public lavatories business rates bill, honestly. But but I do think the story of our uh, Friday night cycle leads us into the subject of this week's episode. Uh, this week, we're talking about lessons from the last few months for transforming how we get around a new space in our cities and towns. During the crisis, uh, places all around the world have expanded pavements and cycle lanes and given over roads to outdoors restaurants and bars. We're asking whether this offers a vision of a better way of using our streets and a moment to re-evaluate the amount of space used by cars. We're talking to Olympic gold medalist turned walking and cycling commissioner for Greater Manchester, Chris Boardman, about their plans and what they've done and are doing during the crisis. We're also talking to former New York Transport Commissioner Jeanette Sadiq Khan about her work with cities around the world on their transport recovery plans. Uh, and Jeff, I think it is worth also saying, although we're not interviewing on this ep- on this episode, if people want a really compelling walking and cycling vision, it is, p- it is worth flagging up the piece by Farhad Manju in the New York Times, which we'll provide a link to in our uh, episode notes. It's brilliant. Ed sent me this uh, a few weeks ago, and, and I genuinely thought it was one of the most inspiring opinion pieces slash newspaper features that I've ever read. It was really, really good glimpse of how cities could be. And it inspired us to do this episode, actually. Absolutely. And our cheerful person this week epitomises cheerful. It's a uh, brilliant comedian, Josie Long. What is your reason to be cheerful this week? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that there I was uh, yesterday, um, came in after work, and... A, a, you know, a package arrived. I think it was UPS. Um, and uh, I was sort of wondering. I was actually thought it was some jeans that I ordered, which I turns out I failed to order. But anyway, leave that to one side. Uh, but imagine my excitement when I discovered not a pair of jeans, but a pair of fantastic headphones. And I thought, well, who's bought me these fantastic headphones, which I'm now wearing? And then I... There was a phone number on the outside of the packet, and indeed it was your phone number. So did you just ring the mystery number? Well, no, no, I checked it was your number, and I thought it was Jeff's number. So then I rang you, and 
was and I was just so overwhelmed by this fantastic present you've bought me. Oh, I know, and and, I felt, I and, felt and basically <laughs> Justine and Justine basically said to me, "Jeff is such a nice man. He just buys you these presents. It's not your birthday. It's not Christmas. There's no reason to buy you a present. All you got him for his birthday was a bracket on a birthday cake two weeks after, uh, which was Sarah's birthday. Uh, you're absolutely hopeless. He's so nice." go you know go to jail do not pass go do not collect 200 pounds and when a judge says to you go to jail do not collect 200 pounds you know that's quite a thing uh and uh and so i rang you up to say you know thank you just so much and well i mean it is a present of a sort well I, I mean you you were it was such a gracious thank you and i thought do i just pre- i sort of had really revved up i mean i'd really <laughs> revved up for it partly being revved up by justine to be sufficiently grateful because i thought it was just so nice of you and i thought do i do i just accept this gratitude and look like this wonderful friend but then i had to admit that we've been having conversations behind your back on the podcast that during lockdown your inability to record yourself and not have the guests bleed through and be on speakerphone and you know your your various uh technological disaster exactly just would would be made a lot easier if you had a nice pair of headphones that actually covered your ears that you remembered to plug in once in a while so that that's it's from everybody here at the podcast ed it's from everybody at reasons to be cheerful it's a sort of it's a kind of quasi gift exactly yeah yeah what what's your reason to be cheerful Uh, my reason to be cheerful is we finished watching mrs america this week which i I think i told you about off the air last week which i've I've really been enjoying it stars kate blanchett as phyllis schlafly who was this american conservative who in the 1970s you know she's kind of like quite hawkish uh and in the 1970s some would say quite cynically she hatched on uh, latched on to the anti-equal rights act um sentiments and and mobilized all these housewives who she planted these ideas in their head that uh that, that young women were going to be conscripted into the army and and loads of other bonkers stuff so it's kind of her story and then the other side of it is all these great figures in the american women's movement who had so much power in the 70s you gloria steinems and and so on she's played by rose byrne uh, tracy ullman's in there as well and it's 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 really good i don't think it's quite grade a television but it's definitely b plus and extremely enjoyable and it looks brilliant that era the 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 clothing and the look of the 70s just just looks fantastic i think maybe um should i ever be invited to a fancy dress party that's the the way i'm gonna go have you ever been to a 70s fancy dress party i am a 70s fancy dress party Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to speak now to somebody that we've been so keen to have on the podcast for a long time. It's finally happened. It is the Olympic gold medal winning cyclist and cycling and walking commissioner for Greater Manchester, Chris Boardman. Hello. You know you haven't. You've just completely made that up. We you have. haven't done the only person. We, we, have. <laughs> we have. Thank you very it, much. You were basically top of the list and Barack Obama was second, Chris. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. There's only two of us. Exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, first thing I want to ask you about is you've, you've sold your car. How, how long was that in, uh, in the making? Yeah. Well, I, I spent about two months thinking, I'm, I don't want to drive everywhere and I'm going to try living without it. Like everybody else, really. The car mostly just sits there and I've got a train service where I work in Greater Manchester. I live over on the 
in the Wirral Peninsula, the Principality of Wirral. And I can get the I can get the train across, and it's a thirty minute bike ride to the station. So I did it for two months and just said, right, I'm just not going to use the car. I'm going to keep it and see what happens. Did that, and after two months, just before lockdown, actually, I thought, right, I'm going to get rid of the car, and then I did, and it's been quite seamless and rather pleasant. Oh, good to hear. And and you've also been working at Halfords during the lockdown. I popped in to help out. Um, I mean, everybody, I mean, we've seen like a huge demand for bikes and, and for lots of different reasons. You know, train services aren't working. People need to get to work. Uh, those that were classed as key workers, people wanting to take some exercise, um, which I think quite rightly governments identified early on was really important if you want people to be able to sustain this. And of course, some people are just bored. Uh, and for all of those reasons, people bought bikes en masse um, and everywhere was selling out. So yeah, I went in a day a week to help out building up some bikes, doing some repairs for uh, NHS staff. And it, it just felt like I was contributing in some way, um, just a little way. And it was um, it was a nice thing to do. And and how, how is it big? So what we're talking about on the episode this week is about how the pandemic can be a, a, a sort of catalyst for the way that we approach our cities and the, and the streets. Do you want to talk to us yeah. a bit about how things have been in Greater Manchester since the start of the crisis? Well, I think it's been... You know, the risk of another cliche, it's been a real journey for all of us because we keep bumping into new things and uh, and consequences. And so, for example, lockdown, consequences, everybody, the roads are really quiet. We literally turned off traffic globally um, for months. Um, and so what do people do with that when they're bored? They go out on the bike, go out for a run and wow, that's a good thing. And we saw huge amounts of people. We were seeing um, up to 70% increases uh, where we're measuring people riding bikes when every other mode of transport has gone down by, you know, between somewhere between 60 and 90%. Um, cycling had gone up 70% from pre-lockdown levels. And we thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. And this is something people have now shown us. They prove to us that if we give them safe space, they will do it. And then governments looked at it and thought, right, what do we do with that? Well, we, when we go back to work and you've got to stay apart, well, how are we going to get people to travel? Now, in Greater Manchester, a third of households don't have uh, access to a car so suddenly you realize that you know all these pop-up cycle lanes which probably get into in a minute are causing uproar it's got nothing to do with cyclists this is about social justice actually giving people another way to travel Um, and at the same time you're having the world's biggest consultation of how can you change the streets and if you don't like it we'll take out the cones and go back to as we were before but if you do well we'll change out the cones for permanent bollards and we'll 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 transform that parking space that you've has always been outside the shop permanently into a space for tables for cafes and bars it's an opportunity to try using our public space roads differently and even if it doesn't work what have we lost we've lost three or four months of trying to do something differently, which we needed to do before this even started. So, so what has the public reaction been then? Do you think there is an appetite for change? Well, it's still ongoing now, isn't it? So to start with, there was no competition for that space. So the people using it in a different way was fine. And a lot of the people who would normally complain because they don't want to be stopped from driving or, or even inconvenienced didn't complain because they wanted to go out with the bored kids on the bikes as well so we were all kind of in it together for a while then we're starting to turn traffic back on now and a lot of places back up to about 75 percent and having made space 
protected space for people to travel uh, on foot and by bike. Now there is a competition for that space. And we are starting to see um, a voiceless minority. And it is a minority saying, you know, oh, this is causing congestion. It's terrible. I'm forgetting about the fact that this isn't for cyclists. This is for people who don't have a car like you. Um, and the complaining has started. And those complaints make headlines. And so it makes it look like a lot more than it is. There was a YouGov poll result yesterday um, that actually showed that for every person who is complaining, there are more than six people who want to see that change. But at the moment, that voice isn't being heard. And I think that's the biggest challenge for government right now. They're, they're, they're about to spend or are in the middle of spending hundreds of millions of pounds and council officer time creating space. And that will either transform the future literally transform the fu transport future of our country or it will be a disaster and be wiped away if they don't get on top of communications very quickly and start to remind people what this is for what's the benefits of doing this and why we should all take part in this great experiment just for those of our listeners who don't live in greater manchester chris paint a picture for us of what's changed as a result of the decisions that you and Andy Burnham have made during this crisis? Well, I mean, probably point number one is um, Andy Burnham is the mayor of Greater Manchester and he can coordinate regional funds uh, because of devolution, uh, which is all still very new, uh, we need to remember. Um, but he doesn't control the roads. Uh, that's local councils and they all make their decisions. So Andy can convene um, and he can push ideas forward. But uh, unlike London, where they're the mayor's office controls about 10 percent of the roads um we don't control any roads so everything has to be done by consensus uh, and every decision of course has consequences so um the reason for the explanation is we are right in the middle now of choosing or rather councils and councillors are of choosing what they're going to do with these emergency funds and how much money are we talking about chris that's been allocated for this well, we have uh, it's called an indicative um, allocation of 13 million, and, and the first bit of it was over three. So, you know, just a bit less than 20 million pounds we have to transform the roads. But you only get that if you are going to demonstrably change the status quo. And are you optimistic about the bids that are coming forward? The the are there imaginative plans for transformation? Well, yeah, we have. I mean, we've got. Um, you know, tens of, of schemes in each of the 10 districts of Greater Manchester. And it's a very similar picture around the country. And um, the, the will is there to do it. But there's natural nervousness about what the public are going to think about when we change the status quo. Um, but there's never a better opportunity because government have, and we must remember, have mandated that you do this. They've actually said you must provide it. Um, and that bit's been forgotten. And what happens next? I genuinely don't know. But I can tell you it's going to shape the transport in this region um, for the next 20 years. And of course, you were onto this well before coronavirus. Talk to us about the B network, uh, that that plan that you that you published and, 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 and what the implications of that would be and the, and the thinking behind it. Well, I got asked to take um, take on the role of Cycling War Commissioner by Andy Burnham in 2017 and um, so we started off, and the first thing we did was went to each of the 10 districts, and we gave them uh, a pen, uh, metaphorically and literally gave them the pen, got a map of their district, and said, right, where do people want to go? And they drew on the map. What stops you going there, uh, walking or cycling? They pointed the bad roads. Where would you get across that? And they drew that. Right, so we've got you across that bit and built a bridge there and some protected lane there. 
And they drew all of these things in the space of an hour and a half. They looked down and there was almost a pause and they went, geez, this is doable, isn't it? So we did that times 10, put it all together, put it online and said to the public, what do you think? Um, we didn't like say, this is what we're going to do. We said, what do you think? And we had 4,000 comments in just a few days. And the most negative comment we had was, where's ours? And so within six months, we built a 1,800-mile plan for the entire city region, and we hadn't touched a pen. Um, and that's something I have to say to this day I'm, I'm quite proud of. It was, um, it was a great thing to have got a consensus. And politically, and, and you'll know, it's re- if, if you try and do something that costs £100,000, it's really hard and it, it doesn't get a lot of attention. If you want to do something that costs £1.5 billion, that's big. And that's a project that people can really be proud of for an entire region. And it needed to be big and it needed to be owned. Um, and that's what it is. It's, it's what you genuinely need if you're going to change how people travel across the city region. And what role do you think the B network can play in, in the recovery from the crisis? You've obviously made reference to this already, but, but say a bit more about that. Well, I think, uh, first of all, we were looking at um, around the country, we've been hearing people talk about pop-up cycle lanes, and they've just been taking lane out of, of roads and just giving it over. And we know it's temporary. And that time is gone now. And so I think what we need, what we have decided to really focus on is, right, okay, where did we want to put things before this started, the B network itself? Let's use these temporary measures to accelerate delivery um, of those things. Rather than having a consultation for months and shall we, shan't we, let's put it in temporarily, put it in for months, let people try it, let's find the faults. And then at the end of those few months, say, right, do you want to keep it? Um, So we've strategically changed uh, our way of approaching to try and speed up delivery of the network that we wanted before all this started. And talk to us about your wider thinking uh, about transport and the potential for for it to change things and what's the what and the risk if we don't get it right. I mean, people are increasingly think thinking much more laterally, aren't they, about who owns cities and towns, who should get precedence, and those issues. To, to talk to us a little bit about that. I've said from the start, really, that this has actually not got anything to do with cycling. This is about making nice places to live. Um, and we forget when we're having these macro fights about shall we take that parking space out or shall we stop that right-hand turn and we get right into the nitty-gritty and lose the point of what we're doing here. Uh, I think if we stop people and say, listen, wouldn't you like somewhere where your kids could just walk to school? Wouldn't you like somewhere where you could get on a bike with them and just potter down to the shops and for that be a nice thing to do? And I think most people, you frame it like that, say, yes, I would. Okay, well, what would you need for that to happen? Well, I don't need this traffic. I need it to be slow and and so on. And and then when you tell them how to do that, um, they're much more likely to go with you. And, And that's what we're finding. So this is about, we know we've got to change the way we travel anyway. What we're doing now is unsustainable. But if you talk to people about climate crisis, um, which incredibly we've stopped talking about for the last four months. Um, it's too big. It's, it's too esoterical. Like, it doesn't affect me right now. But if you talk about my trip to the shops and being able to save £30 a week uh, from public transport if I just moved around like this, then they're the things that people can relate to immediately. And I think that's that's what we're choosing to tap into because that's that's what a change in travel habits will deliver. I think it's too tempting for me to have you on without asking you about the transition from being a gold medal cyclist to being involved in Well, you've got to have a bloody long memory, that's for sure. 
<laughs> Go on, t- talk to us a little bit about that. Were you reticent to get involved as a as a sort of political person? Well, I got into sport because, um, well, for lots of complex reasons about self-esteem and wanting to see how good I was and that's where my mates were and all of those things. But primarily, I like making things. I've always liked making things. And being in sport was a fascination to see how, how fast can we make this person go. Here's an idea uh, with my uh, coach, Peter Keane. Let's go and try it out. Wow, that didn't work. Why not? here's an idea, let's go and try this, it's different. Um, and that was great. And as soon as I got to the point where there's nothing else to make, that I don't think we can get anything else out of this body, I lost interest. And then I wanted to make the next thing um, and then uh, the potential to start a bike company from scratch, you know, something I really enjoyed and believed in, and uh, making things again, and that was great. Um, and then I got just bumped into um, the political side of it back in 2012 really uh, properly when I ended up on Newsnight talking about the 2012 Olympics and got asked about general cycling and why don't cyclists pay road tax etc etc and I started to get quite annoyed because you know road tax we haven't had that since 1936 and uh, there was stuff that people didn't know and you can think on this is a really good thing and it was a very quickly I quickly found it was a very sturdy soapbox to stand on and it was something I was passionate about and it had meaning if we can genuinely change the way people travel in this country, give them a real choice to, to ride and walk. We make a nicer country. And then I was making the next thing, right, how do we get that to happen? Well, it's not about logic. It's not about evidence. We've got mountains of that stuff. It's about how people feel. Okay, how do we get people to feel differently? Um, and, and so I just dived into something else that, um, that is fascinating. How easy do you think it would be to do it the other way around if Ed wanted to go from being a politician to being a gold medalist? Well, how long have you got, Ed? You know, how, how long have you got? He's just trying to wind me up, Chris. Um, actually, I have got one other final question, which is I am I am not a very good cyclist. I mean, I mean significantly worse than gold medal standards. Um, but my wife is trying to persuade me to buy a tricycle, but she thinks it's going to be safer for me. What do you think about the old? What do you think about the adult tricycle? Well, I mean, for me, that the point is that all the stuff that I'm involved in now and I'm passionate about is for people who want to do stuff like that. I know that, uh, you know, if you create the space for people to travel, it can be somebody in a wheelchair, somebody on a trike, somebody with a tag along with kids or shopping, um, all of those things. If you make the space, anybody can use it. My wife actually um, had a tricycle for quite a long time and took the two young kids to school on the back of it. Um, and it was great. So if you could ride your tricycle, wouldn't that be a nicer place to live? Okay, well, that's good. I think that's encouragement, don't you think, Jeff? Yeah, you've had the endorsement. You could call it that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Chris Boardman, you're doing amazing things in Greater Manchester. We're, we're really, we're, you're genuinely, we've been very keen to have you on because we, 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 I think people have noticed what you're doing. Uh, it's great to have somebody who's so passionate about this in, in the widest sense. So thank you so much for joining us. No, you're welcome. Thanks very much. It's been uh, good fun and good luck getting Barack Obama. <laughs> so I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Jeanette Sadiq Khan, who is former Transport Commissioner of New York from 2007 to 2013 and now Principal at Bloomberg Associates. She also advises cities, including Milan, on their cycling strategies. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeanette. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's start off just by asking about the crisis. You're somebody who's obviously worked on city transport for a long period and have a distinguished record. What do you make of how cities 
have tried to adapt during this crisis? Well, what's happened in cities around the world is just gutting. Um, Our streets have gone silent and people have retreated indoors. And, you know, cities without people in the street look nothing at all like a city. And this pandemic has challenged so many of our underlying assumptions about health and economies and uh, education, politics, science. And it's also transformed transportation overnight. You know, it was just a few months ago where we thought that the future of transportation was going to be about e-scooters and autonomous vehicles and e-hail companies. And then the pandemic hit and suddenly traffic is down 50% in the United States. Um, In London, yesterday's morning peak was down almost 40%. We have 30 million Americans out of work. I think you have 9 million out of work. And, you know, millions of people are working from home. And I think what's really interesting here about the global response is that this has nothing to do with new technology, uh, but it's really about the street and the old mobility. And I think you're seeing a revolutionary reclaiming of street space for people on a scale we've never seen before. And it's marking an historic turning point uh, for cities. And so the pandemic didn't just transform our streets. It really revealed the streets that we needed uh, all the time. Um, And the old road order that we're used to, this car-centric city, you know, it wasn't working before. We had 1.3 million people dying on our streets, 4.2 million people dying every year from pollution, and we were driving toward destructive climate change. So it's always been a fight to reclaim streets for people, but the story is different now that the streets are relatively empty. And you can see this sort of blank slate for what's possible. And so you're seeing these road reclamations in London, in Manchester, in Auckland, in Mexico City, uh, in Bogota. And it's not just these emergency actions, but these are strategies for long-term economic recovery and prosperity that won't just outlive the pandemic. They're going to redefine how cities look and feel and function for decades to come. So you've been advising cities such as Milan and Chicago on their transport recovery plans. Tell us about what we can learn from them and from other places around the world. Well, Milan is a great uh, case study because it was one of the earliest cities hit by the pandemic. And their first steps towards reopening was investing in walking and biking and putting that at the center of the street. And Mayor Sala announced a 35-kilometer recovery plan uh, on his streets to take two lanes of the street and turn one into a, an extension of the sidewalk and the other into a bike lane. And Mayor Sala took his 2030 plan for sustainability and made it his 2020 plan. And that's what every city should be doing. And you're seeing, you know, Paris, Mayor Hidalgo has made the Rue de Rivoli through the heart of Paris a car-free uh, corridor and announced a 750-kilometer a bike lane plan to connect the center city and surrounding areas. Bogota has made its famous Ciclovia program permanent and opened up 70 miles of streets to bikes and walking only and added another 50 miles of pop-up bike lanes. And you're seeing that in Seattle and Oakland and, and Brussels and, and cities as diverse as uh, Vilnius and Tampa and, and Boston, New York, and, and now Chicago are allowing their roadways to be turned into outdoor seating areas. And this makes better use of the street while the traffic volumes are down, and it gives people a place to go outside of their home safely and gives restaurants uh, an economic boost during these challenging times. 
And you were obviously on this, you know, much earlier. You were New York Transport Commissioner. You led the way in pedestrianising parts of the city, including, I think, Times Square. Tell us about the resistance you faced and what you learnt from that experience. Well, I learned, you know, people are very bought into the status quo. They like things the way they are. But we showed when you worked quickly to show what was possible, you know, even outlining areas, creating a plaza with paint and planters and showed the possibility that was hidden in the street, you know, they liked it. And so it went beyond just the years and years of planning and engineering studies, you know, that takes so long to get anything done. Um, But when we started our work under Mayor Bloomberg, uh, we created almost 400 miles of bike lanes and 60 new pedestrian spaces across New York City, launched seven rapid bus lanes and had the fewest recorded traffic deaths in history. Of course, we pedestrianized Times Square, which was kind of like the moonshot heard around the world. People thought it was crazy, some of these ideas, you know, that would cause Carmageddon, um, that businesses would go out of business because... Uh, they thought the you know traffic was critical to their success, and after all of those challenges, we found that we could make our streets work better for traffic, and work more safely for people, and better streets were better for business. And now, what we're seeing in cities around the world recovering from COVID is that reclaiming streets has really been the first step. Uh, and obviously, one important issue in relation to all this is about people with disabilities and how you make sure that the changes that you're talking about cater properly to their needs. And and I just wonder if you could say how that was done in New York. Well, we had um, Americans with Disabilities Act advocates as part of our working groups when we went through these uh, proposals and projects. So for plazas, we put in tactile warning strips, you know, to, to meet the needs of people that were crossing the street when we were changing new ways of getting around. You know, there are accessible bikes for people with disabilities. Um, But making it easier to navigate the city is a critical part of making it work better for everyone. You know, know, we are all kind of temporarily able. You know, we need to bring that, that focus, that approach to everything that we do in the city. And so we just need to bring that new universal design ethic to the design of all of our infrastructure. And how much of it is weaning people off cars? I mean, especially in America, you think of the car almost being tied into a sense of identity. Is it about making the streets more attractive or how much is it about penalising people for car use? Well, I'm not anti-car, I'm pro-choices. You know, it's important to give people choices for getting around. And of course, it may be a while before people ride transport like they used to. And right now we have to prepare and defend against a recovery where driving is seen as the only safe option. And until public transport is fully restored, until we have a full recovery and full employment, and until everyone can take a tube or a bus or a train, walking and biking are going to be two critically important options. You know, not everyone has to do that, but it will also give transport time to recover and to institute new cleaning protocols and new riding rules But we have to start from the principle that there is just no sustainable future for cars in cities. There will never be enough money, never enough parking, never enough concrete, asphalt and steel. There's just not enough city for everyone to drive. 
and and because you you know you're having these conversations with mayors all the time and and transport commissioners can you give us you know we're, we're really excited about this and um, we're excited about what ideas there are out there i wondered if you could sort of talk us through what what the most interesting thinking is at the moment have you come across this idea of the 15 15 minute city yes i mean i when you think about it cities have uh, all around the world have been working off this very outdated operating code. You know, during the 20th century, many cities were based on the principle of separation of uses. You know, you live in one neighborhood and you work in the city center, you travel to a district or you shop to eat in a restaurant, you, you play or you exercise in a park. And in many cities, it's impossible to get around without a car. That's certainly the foundation of American cities. It's built around the car. And so I think the smart mobility innovation of the 21st century isn't to use tech to reduce car traffic. It's building a city where you don't need to drive in the first place. And that's why many cities are looking at this 15-minute city idea that a person could accomplish almost all of their daily activities on their own power. You know, every place you need for your day-to-day life is within 15 minutes whether by walking or biking or transport. Um, and when you look at a city this way, as a, as through a 15-minute lens, this, the city and the street look very different. And there's no place for cars, be, not because they've been banned, but because they're not necessary. And Paris Mayor uh, Hidalgo announced in February, this was before the pandemic, that she would win re-election on the platform of a 15-minute city, you know, which is healthier and more connected and economically strong. Talk to us about the issue of the sort of vested interests that stand in uh, one's way as one tries to uh, make these reforms, Jeanette. And, you know, the vested interests are us, uh, you know, not just sort of the, the kind of vested interests we think about. You had to come up against your own version of the vested interests as, as commissioner. What, what do you learn from that process? Well, I think, you know, moving quickly, having a vision, showing what's possible, bringing the data all of those are key elements to success, right? In New York, under Mayor Bloomberg, when we put out our long-range sustainability plan, um, which was for a greater, greener New York, you know, we had 8.5 million New Yorkers that were like, really, greater, greener? Nothing has changed in my street in my lifetime, and I don't expect anything to change in my lifetime. And you, with your bike lanes and your plazas, I don't see how this is going to make anything better. But when we moved quickly to just... Test it out. We said, we'll try it. We'll see. If it works, we'll keep it. If it doesn't work, we'll put it back to the way that it was. And moving quickly and getting that buy-in by showing what was possible, but what was tangible, not by a dry engineering drawing, but by showing what was possible in the street. You know, people could see and touch it and feel it, and then they wanted it. And at the end of the Bloomberg administration, there was 73% support for bike share. There was 72% support for plazas, 64% for bike lanes. If this had been an election, it would have been a landslide. And so the New Yorkers, their their very understanding of what the status quo changed. I said at the top of the uh, podcast that we were very taken by a piece by Farhad Manju in the New York Times, which was uh, a sort of multimedia kind of uh, exposition of kind of how New York could change. And I suppose what struck me the most was something incredibly obvious but but uh but but was very well illustrated there which was the space taken up by cars and the space that could be kind of liberated by changing the way a city works just talk to us about that that sort of 
you know the, the the kind of the kind of things that could be freed up if a vision like that was implemented when you think about it cars take up so much space on the street you know most of the space on the street and parked cars sit there for 98% of the time not being used you know i think if you were an alien and you came down to the planet and you looked at our streets you would say oh apparently their god is a 2000 pound steel box because that's really everywhere and that's apparently the priority on the street and i think it's interesting cuz you know by starting by reclaiming our streets uh for people on public transport uh on foot or on bike you know we can reset our cities to move people around safely and affordably and easily no matter where they live when you think about it just 10 years ago building cycling infrastructure and pedestrian space was a radical act, you know, in London and in cities around the world. And today, room to walk and bike is a matter of survival for cities and it's been the first thing that mayors have turned to uh on every continent. Okay, well look, Janet Sadiq Khan, thank you so much. That's an incredibly inspiring vision that you've presented to us and we're really grateful to you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So what did you think? Well, I just find it incredibly inspiring, you know, from when you sent me that New York Times article the other week and just seeing how much space is taken up by cars. Um it's really exciting to think of the way that cities could be and it feels like it's a, a real moment to seize that. But you have seized it. I have seized you it. You are actually I am I'm you're living never mind our guests. I am living Never mind our guests. You are the you're the inspiration. You know, there will be, if you want to go back and check what I thought of cycling, we did a cycling episode um, however many months ago, and there I am saying, no, you wouldn't get me cycling in London because I don't want to get squished between a, a, a bus and a lorry. And yeah. now I'm out sort of three, four, five times a week. Sort of romantically cycling down the boulevards with your, with your beloved. Exactly, yeah. There's a great documentary that I must rewatch called Urbanised um which was about how much space cars take up in part part of it was compared to how many people are say for example on one bus and what your priorities should be as a as, as a city planner um and i really you know love that point janet made about what aliens would think if they came down and saw our cities and just saw all these empty boxes just sitting there not in use i know it's so interesting actually what i thought was I was struck by too was her thing about sort of move quickly, you know, in a way, governments often think oh, we should consult. She, her point was don't was sort of consult, but kind of get on with it to show people what what's possible. Because actually, the fear of what is this going to be like, what is it going to mean for getting around, is greater, much greater than the reality. And then the sort of try before you buy idea that she and Chris both emphasised, you know, this moment of crisis is a is a chance to show people and, and the car use being down how you can transform streets. And, and it's sort of, you know, it can be almost a trial, a trial run. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, our cheerful person this week is that most optimistic of all comedians. It's Josie Long. Hello. 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 Do you still recognise that description of yourself after this year, Josie? Oh, heavens. I think it's a complicated time. What I have learned about myself through the uh, 
rigorous and constant kicking that it comes holding the beliefs I do is that um, I really, really have so much faith in people and in human nature. Like, I really do. I I have uh, an unending belief that ordinary people are fantastic and will get things done. That's lovely to you. It's still like that. I first remember seeing you do stand up, I don't know, 15 years ago or whatever. And I, I've, I've told you before, I found it so refreshing that you see so many comedians complaining. They're saying, Oh, don't you just hate it when this happens? And you turn that on its head and, and your whole shtick at the time was, don't you just love it when this yeah. happens? At that time, I didn't really think it was unusual. Like, I didn't think it... I, I was like, I just want to talk about things I love. And now I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, at that time, comedy was just sort of cynical guys having a go at stuff. Um, but it's funny because now I think comedy's so much richer and broader uh, that it just is quite normal that people are like, I like this. Hi, I'm doing a delightful, unusual thing. And so, yeah, it's less of... and. I suppose now all I'm doing on on Zoom gigs at the moment is using my daughter's Peppa Pig figurines to give my very strong opinions about the show and its characters. Well, it's great to hear that you've struck a licensing deal with Peppa Pig. (laughs) 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 Um, So so what are you doing? I mean, I I know that your show Tender, which was your Edinburgh show from last year, I know you've been regularly performing that online. Tell tell us about what you've been doing comedy-wise during lockdown. Well, uh... It's been an interesting time. Um, when it first happened, um, me and my friend Robin Ince, who do a lot of podcasts and shows together, we, I think, did something a bit manic and crazed, which is like every single day we streamed a show for about the first eight weeks. And I don't even know whether anyone was watching them, but it just felt really important for us to be like, hello, yes, here we are broadcasting, broadcasting from the deck of the Titanic, here we are. (laughs) Um, And so I went really, really, really headlong into doing stuff online. So from what I glean from talking to people who do your job, as in the stand-up bit of the job, there is something extremely addictive about it. Yes, How much of that itch does uh, performing online scratch for you? Oh, I was really thinking about this. About 10%. Right. It's 10% as fun for like 80% of the energy. It's so, like, I, I do shows on Twitch and I get people to chat, to people chat in the uh, chat panel. And I literally have to beg people to be like, if you find it funny, can you write ha 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 ha? Because <laughs> otherwise I can't feel the responses. It's really interesting, and there are definitely some positives from it. Like, I love the fact that now I will be far more confident doing a show online, organising a show online, mucking around. I love the fact that I've got a Twitch channel and I can use it, but I really didn't realise how much I love, love, love being on stage and also how physically addicted I am to it. For the low-tech amongst us, what does Twitch do for you? Uh, you Well, so it was originally set up as a platform for people to play video games so other people could watch. But now loads of people are doing amazing, interesting things. And to be honest, they always have been. I just was put off by the sort of framing of it. But um, there's a comedian called uh, Bill Alzaffer who is doing an incredible thing where he's playing a 15-year-old football game where you're the football manager and you kind of arrange for your team to play games. And he is improvising whole shows where he's the football manager and like getting people who are like the head of the fan club ed 
there's an opportunity here for us. We could set up a Twitch channel and then have you playing Manic Minor. I was thinking about that. That was you That's guys. That's not bad, Jeff. And you do, do, could do, 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 do you think you still would be able to? Do you think you'd still be able to complete it all these years on? You know what? I have a bit of a secret. I think. I think. I think after I lost the general election, and, and therefore some months after you interviewed me, I think I did download Manic Miner onto my desktop and started playing it again. And I think my memory is that I'd rather lost my touch. You could get I feel it back like though. That's too sad for me. It's like you're at a low point in your life, and you were like, "I guess I'll just play Manic Miner." I know. I know. It is sad, isn't it? Josie, when it when is um. When is when do you think live comedy is coming back, and should we be worried about it? It's been such a oh gosh, it's so complicated. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the industry yesterday, and she was saying that the thing is you've got two categories here. You've got is it safe and is it viable commercially, and the two of them are so not designed for each other, and so like I. I I worry a lot. I've seen, you know, the the Live Comedy Association did some research and it is really frightening. It's, you know, lots and lots of venues are looking like they are on the brink of closure. An art centre that I was due to be playing was closed. Not to do with me, I should add. It's a really, really scary time. And the thing that saddens me is it's independent venues and unusual venues that are not not able to kind of weather this storm and yeah it worries me but what i would say is it's an area where people use a lot of ingenuity and always have done like because historically stand-up comedy has never had any arts council funding and because historically stand-up comedy has been less of an established arts form in general people do just go right i want to set up a gig i'll set it up in this unusual place i'll run a gig in my house i'll run a gig like i've done it where i've put on gigs ad hoc in public spaces with no permission for fun um and you can i think it will find a way but it's really nerve-wracking well let's let's talk about your charity in the context of all this because um you know, some years ago, how, how many years are we talking now? Is it 10 years? 10 years, uh, 10 years ago, yeah. we started. You, you and thought seven years ago, we incorporated it as a charity. It's arts emergency. And, you know, you, you identified as so many people have that privileged people do very well in the arts and media because of the networks. And you had this idea, which was to set up a net, network for people who weren't privileged and provide mentorship. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us a, a little bit about what where that charity is up to and yeah. what your, your plans and challenges are with regards to the recovery from the pandemic? I should say that when I speak, I'm not speaking uh, as a representative of the charity. The times we live in at the moment like mean that charities are explicitly not allowed to be publicly political organisations. But the the pandemic's been a really uh, harder time than uh, it even was already for the young people that Arts Emergency works with. Um, it's, you know, people who were already in difficult living situations then add on to that, you know, all of the financial stresses, all of the 
um, difficulty of being stuck in those living conditions. And then add on to that the fact that these are young people who are still trying to do qualifications and how how much of a mess that is. Add on to the fact that, you know, if you don't have good access to the internet, um, you can't properly work and you can't properly connect to your uh, le- educational um place place of learning there we go basically they need the organization more than ever i'm so proud of the organization it's definitely setting up but it's very scary times ahead and the best thing people can do is if they're able to pledge uh whatever monthly amount however small they can afford that really helps that organization and and helps people from yeah uh, not posh backgrounds you know get into the arts it is such a wonderful organisation. And the people, oh my God, the people that run the organisation are wonderful. They're so good at what they do. And I really, yeah, it's a great thing to support. I mean it so much. They change people's lives already. I know you had your bike stolen. Oh, I did, yeah. I saw on Twitter. Now, um, I've recently become a convert to cycling and Ed is sort of feeling a little bit hesitant. He's considering a tricycle. What? What? Can no. You say? No. No. Don't get a tricycle. Listen. Don't tricycle shame me, Jersey Long. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I apologise. I, I, I just, I don't want you to miss out on the full joy of a bike. I think the electric tricycle, though, might be the way to go. They're incredibly heavy, apparently. Yeah, oh, if you can get an electric one. But then, may I suggest, do not do as I did, which is lock your dream bike, not that mine was electric, but do not lock your dream bike to your child's plastic slide that can be dismantled. Uh, Mm. That's what I would suggest, is don't do that. That's what I've learned. Wise words. That's my problem, is I think, as a human being, I'm idealistic and I'm naive and I just assume that everyone else is on that wavelength and I just barrel through and sadly, time and time again, I'm shown that it is not what everyone is like in their decision-making. Oh, Josie, don't go changing. And, and, <laughs> and thank you for being a cheerful person this week. You've cheered us up. Oh, you're very kind. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Right, we're in the outro. We are. Um, oh, I've got an email that I quickly Ooh. wanted to read out. You remember yes. we talked about the Flintstones last week? Indeed, indeed. I'm, fa- I'm afraid I visited an episode of the Flintstones inspired by a discussion on my children, and it was pretty sexist, basically. I'm afraid it's sort of lost something with the passage of time. Yeah, I think... It was, we- all about, it was all about the mother-in-law coming to stay. I mean, it was slightly... My, my children looked very disapproving. Right. Well, well, it's good that your children were disapproving, and, and often these things are far better in the memory than they are if you revisit them. It doesn't compete with YouTube videos of people playing Minecraft. <laughs> um, well, we, we had an email from Barney Rubble. Oh, my goodness me. I know. I've always wanted to meet Barney Rubble. Well, it's, this is the next best thing. Uh, Barney wow. says, Did you know that the, um, the the scansion for the Flintstones theme tune matches perfectly that for Milton's Paradise Lost? And, wow. uh, and then uh, he, he writes it out for us of man's first disobedience and the fruits of that forbidden tree. That's good, isn't it? I was really hoping you were going to give us the next line, but you bottled it. From the town of Bedrock, there a page right out of his story. It works perfectly. And then what's the next thing? Let's ride with the family down the street through the courtesy of Fred's two feet. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I'd like to thank our guests Chris Boardman and Janet Sadiq Khan. 
And thanks to the ever wonderful Josie Long. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. Big shout out to Emma. All the research is done by Joel Pierce with backup from Joe Kenyon and Zoe Gelber, who, by the way, writes the newsletter. You must subscribe to the newsletter. It will improve your life by what percentage, Ed? 100%. 100%. That's been uh, verified by our team of statisticians here at Reasons to be Cheerful. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. And we should say, additional artwork this week was provided by Jacob Held. He's been facing his Waterloo. He's been facing his Portaloo. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful.